when the going's good, that's when you get complacent, you know. The biggest problem for big teams is complacency. You know, I'm a Liverpool fan, but like Manchester United's manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, would always say that the hardest title to win was the one right after you've just won. Because when you're a champion to become a champion again, it's way harder because you've not got the hunger. You become complacent. You believe you're the best, so you don't work as hard. It's the middle of September 2008. There's been a few months of central banks telling us that everything's okay. We're we're in a bit of a bit of a squeeze. Your house prices have depleted somewhat. Stock markets are crashing a little bit, but it's okay. We, we've endured a crash. It's okay. We we can deal with this. We've we've got the resources. We we can manage. And then, lo and behold, Lehman Brothers, an institute that's been standing for 158 years, has to shut its doors. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. It can't pay its staff. Uh, it can't pay its bills. It literally can't afford to stay open for one more day. Brought down by bad mortgage investments, Lehman, which has 25,000 employees, will be liquidated. And nobody wants to buy it or sell its stock. Virtually, their assets are worth nothing. Was it? I just feel, I fear that it's gonna be like dry as fuck. Can 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 you make it sound funnier and sexier? No, but no, maybe BBS maybe is... maybe you could compare an an ABS to like a naked woman. Yeah, that'd be or... tough, man. Because an ABS can be quite a nasty thing. Two naked women. I'm Omar Jamil. I'm a performance analyst that works for an asset manager in the West End of London. To understand the whole thing, we need to go way back. After the dot-com bubble of the early noughties, we had low interest rates in the US and in Western Europe. Simultaneously to this, we also had a large influx of capital. So this meant that wage growth was very good. There's a lot of disposable income. There's also low bank rates. So that means you can get a mortgage a lot easier. So whenever your parents tell you that they bought a house for 50 grand and now it's worth 500 grand or, or, or whatever, that's what they're talking about. Their, their wages grew really fast, something we find you know, it really hard to understand. This meant that slowly house prices were rising. As they rose, people bought more and more. This led to more of an influx of buyers, which obviously means that your house prices are gonna rise faster and faster. As this happened, obviously banks are gonna get involved and try and make some money on it. They created these things called an asset-backed security. which is a fancy way of saying you have a pot into which you put 10 mortgages. Each of the houses are worth, say, a million each. Your pot is worth 10 million, so you pay 10 million to buy this pot. But from the pot, then you can draw each of their mortgage payments. So say for argument's sake that per annum, 
for the whole of the pot it will make you 100 grand really fanciful example but just just for ease of understanding so this means now that for however long the mortgage is run you will be able to make a hundred thousand off the back of that if these 10 mortgages are millionaires that are buying houses then it means that you're highly likely to recover all of this amount so that that's a you know really good investment you know you will get that 100 percent The returns you get aren't as attractive as they could be so you try and shuffle the pot in some way that you have say eight really good mortgages and two not so good mortgages the not so good mortgages have to pay you more money because that's the way risk works you know if i take more risk i want a bigger reward so i'll put two riskier ones in and this is what happened ultimately abs's were quite popular initially but banks started taking more and more risks now as the market progressed as the market matured it meant that by around 2006 there was a slowdown of construction of homes because people simply weren't buying houses 70% of the population in the United States owned houses so this meant that there was simply not enough people buying houses. Mortgage lenders had to attract new buyers. The only way to do that is to make mortgages more attractive. How do you do that? You introduce 0% deposits or no payments for 18 months. For your th second mortgage or for your third mortgage or for your fourth mortgage, you get better and better rates because you are a loyal customer and we will look after you. When this starts drying up, then you have to lower the house price. As this slowly started happening, the housing market started crashing slightly. This also meant that mortgage brokers had to lend more and more money out to people that ultimately probably five, five, six years ago, they wouldn't even look at. See, this part is really tricky. Like, how do you, how do you properly like tie it all in together? So annoying. Um, it's alright. It's there's a lot to. Is 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 is, is really actually quite difficult. Uh, where do you want me to jump in there? So you talked about the pot mm -hmm. and people. And let's start again from there. Let's okay. yeah. Let's start again from the from the pot. Yeah yeah. Okay. As time progressed, as the real estate bubble burst. This was caused by the presence of subprime mortgages within these pots. A subprime mortgage is one that is made to people who can't amply afford the mortgage. A prime mortgage, if you imagine a millionaire perfectly able to meet all of their mortgage obligations. A subprime mortgage is one, for example, a, a young couple who've just cobbled together enough money for a deposit these people are less likely to be able to make mortgage payments for the remainder of their life, whether that is because they have less of an uh, asset cushion, less money at the bank, or less stable jobs, say, or poor credit histories. As the economy matured, these mortgages became more prevalent within ABS contracts. It's such a fucking tough thing to talk about. 
Um, so you've explained the pot and the ABS, and now yeah. you've explained what subprime things Means, are. Yeah. So then the next the next bit to explain is that banks use of ABS. Yeah, yeah. So they bought. <laughs> yeah, they bought more and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, even let's, though let's... they were subprime. subprime. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about. Bikes using ABS. The riskier the asset, the higher the return. So, if in your pot that we discussed earlier with 10 prime mortgages, if you added a couple of subprime mortgages, it meant that the 100 grand that you get from your prime can be coupled with, say, 150 grand or 200 grand, depending on how risky your subprime is. So, you only pay 1 million for the subprime and only 1 million for the prime, but the interest payment from the subprime is double that of the prime. You can understand why banks wanted to move in on this. There was a necessity. There's very few prime mortgages after a while. There was a saturation. Worth noting here actually is that in a downturn economy, subprime mortgages are not very common. In an upturned economy, the, the better the economy is, is doing, the more likely it is. When the economy is poor, a bank's not going to want to take too many risks. When the economy is doing well, and when the bank has a lot more money to sort of play around with, take a, take a few more risks, then they're more likely to venture out and buy these subprime mortgages. This is when commercial banks are more likely to lend to riskier banks because you've got an ease of capital you feel more comfortable lending money out to risk your investments. Cut there. How was that? Was that a bit meandering? Was that okay? That was okay. It was okay. We could do it again. Uh... <laughs> it's, it's all the it's all the terminology because you have to like try and hit it, and then you have to also sound like you know talking about the most boring thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In 2004, 70% of the people in the US that could get a house had a house. So if you keep building houses at the speed that you have been doing for the last few years, you'll eventually get to a point where nobody's going to buy any houses. So we've got too many houses being built that could not be filled and we've got people who can't afford to be going into these houses. So when this all came to a head, it meant that a neighborhood of say 20 houses had seven houses occupied and 13 houses not occupied. Now, I'm a bank, I want to lend some money, there's no one to buy, I'm taking more risks to get these people to come in. Of the seven subprime mortgages I've sold, three of them can't make their payments so now i've got even more houses how do i get rid of these houses i drop the price if i keep dropping the price the whole market's price drops when that happens i've got a bit of a problem in my hands the people that are still within the mortgages the house they bought for five hundred thousand, their neighbor's house which is now empty exact same house is now worth two hundred fifty thousand. how can they keep paying me, how can they justify that? 
So they don't, they walk away. And I lose even more money. And that, in essence, is how the real estate crash really happened. That's, that, no, that's, that was really good. Okay. That's the first thing of the US yeah. housing bubble, isn't it? Yeah, can I, will I say that? Yeah, say that, yeah. <laughs> say that. <laughs> yeah. And that is how the US housing bubble burst. Boom. Whilst all of this was happening, the value of ABSs were not declining. You'd imagine that they would, but initially they didn't. We had a period of time where the housing market crashed. That led to the stock market crashing, and still the banks were doing okay. If anyone's watched The Big Short, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a period of time where things really should have been going wrong, shit really should have hit the fan, but everything was seemingly okay, precariously okay. And why was it okay? Ultimately, it was probably because banks were trying to meet out their ends. They knew things were wrong, but agencies weren't making in public that things were wrong. You've got such a big crash in the housing market, it meant that a lot of these asset-backed securities were starting to fail them. So back to our pot of 10 mortgages. Now there's three left. So now the interest payments that I'm meant to be getting, the mortgage repayment that I'm meant to be getting as the holder of the pot has dwindled to 30% of its value. So now, regardless of what the ratings agency tells me, I can see that this is garbage. I know I need to get rid of this. And then there was a period of time where the banks tried to offload these to each other or just into the market to whoever was willing to buy it. So yeah, so now you've just said we get into a period where they're trying to offload their mortgages. Mm. Are you going to go into that bit now? Yeah. As the property market crashes, as the stock market crashes, and then eventually banks start crashing. And once banks start crashing, the central banks start getting spooked. When they start getting spooked, that's when you know you're in trouble. It begins with a call for calm. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson tried to reassure investors today. The American people can remain confident in the soundness and the resilience of our financial system. The stock market crash is happening and your central bank is saying, everyone relax, it's not that bad. That's when you know, right, I need to be on guard here. Something's not right. Even at this stage, when we're talking like early 2008, when you know, the stock market has crashed, property market has crashed globally. Every sort of central bank is trying to calm down its investors, making sure that people don't start selling everything because if everything starts being sold, everything becomes cheaper, which means there's gonna be a stock market crash, of course, bigger than, than we saw. It is definitely a very, very difficult time and it's not gonna get better quickly. First real big spook was March 2008 when Bear Stearns had to be bailed out by the Fed in America, their central bank. The Federal Reserve stepped up with a $30 billion loan guarantee so Bear Stearns could merge with another bank. 
this was because they held too many ABSs on their balance sheet and now ABSs were worth far less than the lucrative amounts they were worth a couple of years beforehand. Everyone realized that the underlying mortgages for these ABSs are garbage so I'm not going to buy one which means that if someone else holds a lot they're going to struggle to sell it off. If you're not going to sell it off that means you're not making any money back you're relying on this money to come in so now you've not got money to pay your staff now you've not got money to pay your bills the fed had to step in to prevent global financial chaos or a domino effect it's as if the mortgage industry held a gun to its head so the fed came in and they were like marilyn here you go have some money Merrill, the country's biggest brokerage with 60,000 employees, had been battered by nearly $50 billion in mortgage-related losses. Bear Stearns, here you go, have some money. I think that this, you know, this really, in hindsight, probably should have been when all of the central banks around the world got together, even behind closed doors, even through back channels, but this is really where they should have said, guys, we need to really be worried here. Central banks didn't do that. They continued to tell everyone to please calm down, to, to let the stock market quote unquote correct itself, but that ultimately didn't happen. In 2008, uh, in September and October, Lehman Brothers crashed. So in just six months, three of the five biggest independent firms on Wall Street have now disappeared. Bear Stearns, which collapsed last spring, Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch. Where are we up to? We have done Pause for Calm. Yeah. Bill Arts. And then Lehman Brothers crashed. We've done that as well, I see. Yeah. Okay. And then it gets quantitative easing. easing. Okay, let's do QE. After the crash of Lehman Brothers, after the crash of the housing market globally, after the crash of the stock market, after people lost their houses, their jobs, a lot of livelihoods, your cash was worth a lot less. We needed something to be done really quickly. Governments agreed to do this thing called quantitative easing. Ultimately, it is just a bailout of epic proportions. It's a bailout where the government will pile money into a lot of companies uh, to try and stimulate growth in an economy. The only way to effectively do that is to cut the interest rates to virtually zero. When you lower your rates this much and then you pile a lot of money into financial institutions to invest, uh, the hope is, is that if you give them a really low rate and then you give them a lot of money, then they have no incentive to hold this money in their own savings accounts. So. Imagine this, I give you £10,000 and I give you two bank accounts. One gives you 10% back and one gives you 0% back. You're obviously going to put in the 10% and not do anything. But if that option is not available, you can either put it in the 0% and it erodes money over time. Or you can take that money and you can invest it into something and get a bigger return back. That is ultimately what quantitative easing is about. I give you lots of money. There's no interest to be had. You need to spend it to make money back. 
when you spend that that will trickle down to people now we're not talking about trickle down economics here because that is a another podcast uh probably for another show because it's far more boring than this topic um but the ultimate point of qe was to stimulate the economy it's a stimulus package now you've supplied a lot of money there and there's no interest rates the only way companies can do anything with it is to spend it cash sitting around is not going to make you very much money but spending it investing in things the hope is that that will kickstart the economy that will make money and here i have a lot of sympathy for the government something you won't hear me say a, a lot of they just had to do it they had to do qe they had to do austerity at the time that they did they had to bail the banks out ultimately you know it's a very sordid affair one that will we'll look back in history and and really go wow well i hope anyway we can look back and go wow that was a tough time implying that the time that we're in in 20 years is a lot better than than it has been we'll just wrap up then okay so um just a an end statement really like a you know why do you think it's so important to talk about this you know it's it's a tricky thing because a lot of dereliction of duty happened from various sectors of the financial world um i don't think also um it's any coincidence that a few years after the great depression we had world war 2 now we're again seeing the rise of nationalist populism it is a lot to do with an angry generation a generation that had its youth and its prime sort of ripped away some people whose whose parents didn't perform so well some people themselves who didn't perform so well some people who never got jobs never got the right jobs are very angry with society and as again to quote the big short which is a great film that describes all of this far better than i have i have a feeling that in a few years people are going to be doing what they always do in the economy tanks they will be blaming immigrants and poor people since then you know everything's really really up in the air it's hard to look around anywhere and see people who are doing really really well and scene from leave it there yeah oh, shit okay